Nothing knows. Nothing knows. Nothing knows. Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. Listen along as accomplished guests discuss success and failures during their journeys as entrepreneurs, business owners, and investors. Bettering your position starts by learning from those who went before you. That learning experience can happen anywhere, in the car, at the beach, or on a treadmill. There are no excuses for where you end up in life. If you want something bigger, the time to take action is now. There is no better time in history to achieve success. The hosts, Brian and Stu, are both Marine Corps veterans who believe life is what you make it. Your place in life is determined by your decisions. If you want more information on the podcast, please check out the website at nothingowed.com. No BS stands for Nothing Owed with Brian and Stu. That's what you're going to get with the show. Are you ready? Welcome back, everybody. Stu Scheller. Got my co-host, Brian Hanna. And today I've got one of my good friends, John McConnell, really excited about this episode. So wave tops of John's background before we get into it. John and I were Marine infantry officers together. Then John got out. He went to law school. He started his own private security company that does security on commercial shipping called Meridian. He had a run for the U.S. Federal Senate. Still, I think uh, we're going to see this guy in the future in some type of political arena, and we'll get into that too. But before I turn it over to you, John, I'll just say Brian and I, when we started this, our goal was to bring people on that we could just learn from. And you're one of my friends, but I definitely am excited to have you and learn from you. So with that introduction, John, welcome. And can you just uh, start with military career? You got it in the military. What were your ambitions at the time? And then walk us through in, in uh, 10 to 15 minutes or less what the military career was before you headed off to law school. I almost went to the Naval Academy. And then I went and visited the Naval Academy. And then the next weekend, my sister had me come down and visit uh, Auburn where she was a sophomore. <laughs> and uh, she was like, hey, she told all of her friends on her shorty hall, hey, uh, my brother seemed like joining the military. We need to convince him to come to Auburn. And so I, I literally stayed with her that weekend, slept on the floor in the sorority hall, and uh, drowned in beautiful girls. And I was like, never looked back. I never even considered the Naval Academy after that. I don't so think anyone no, that's considering the Naval Academy that spent a weekend on the floor in a sorority house of Auburn would ever go to the Naval Academy. Yeah, no, I proved at least that I had still had some sanity at that point in my life. And I uh, had a great time my sophomore years when 9-11 happened and that's when those ambitions came back. It was just like, listen, you just, you feel that call to serve, you know, I ended up finishing college in three years, but then ended up joining the Marine Corps. OCS uh, went through there and, you know, it was honored to serve. And, and at that point it, it just felt humble to be able to do that. You know, the fact that God let me make it through there, I uh, did not anticipate that happening. Survived TBS. Uh, and then I remember Captain Quinter at TBS, I think you should go infantry. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, I'd love to do infantry. Uh, that is such a high calling to be able to say, hey, I want to go to be an infantry officer uh, because you're sitting there leading Marines uh, into battle. And who are you to say that you even deserve the ability to do that? It almost takes a certain type of uh, confidence or arrogance. Captain Quinn was like, Jonathan, you should be an infantry officer and do the type of these paint chips. Hold on, I got to jump in there. Similar story. 
Same, so I was in the same TBS class with John, and for whatever reason, yeah, our class needed to feed a lot of infantry officers, probably because we were at war. But I did, I'm dirty secret here, I didn't put infantry number one either. So I think I had it in my top five. And my SBC looked at me and said, Scheller, you're going to be an effing infantry officer. And <laughs> I, I kind of thought he was joking, you know? And uh, he was not. And uh, same, same deal. Like, hey, we need infantry officers. You're aggressive. You eat paint chips. Uh, you're going to be an infantry yeah. officer. Looking back, it was the best decision I think I could have ever possibly made. Oh, yeah. I completely concur with that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in retrospect, I wouldn't have picked anything else. But, no. So that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, 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 it was such an incredible opportunity. Definitely humbling. Uh, when I when I got it, I was like, oh, man, you have that, that fear of, uh, OC, or of IOC. You know, if your officer course is, is one of the hardest courses that I think that a Marine infantry officer can go through. When I, when I got out of that course, I really felt like I was untouchable to do anything. Yeah, uh, and so I got, I got a great story on this that'll tie to you, John. So literally, we went from TBS to IOC, and the, the big uh, hazing slash evaluation slash weed people out event is called the CET. And on that event, so I literally, the CET was on a, a Thursday. My wedding was on a Saturday, the wedding that you came to. And on that ground fighting station, Marcus Mines was the guy that fought students. Marcus Mines, if you're in the Marine Corps, you know who he is. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around him, but you can, he was, he was a, a good instructor. Uh, he had a lot of talents and he was a great fighter. He was a collegiate wrestler. And so anyway, at the ground fighting station, I, you know, you run like 12 miles. I'm about 12 miles of cardio at this point, just exhausted. And he just beat the shit out of me. So when I was fighting him, like I was, I was pretty much going toe to toe and I think it frustrated him. So then he started working me. And he elbowed me in the eye and gave me a black eye. And I had a black eye for my wedding. So in all my wedding pictures, I have this black eye. So Marcus Mines, I've never actually told you that story. So if you're listening to this, but John was at my wedding. And uh, that I think that just ties into IOC, black eye at your wedding. That was, uh, that's my story. Stu, Alec, I talk about your wedding probably every few months. You all wrote your own vows. And you wrote your vows as you were talking. That's and right. It was, like, I literally was sitting there, and it went from, like, the absolute worst vows I've ever heard <laughs> to the best recovery I'd ever heard in my life. There was a point where I was, like, looking around, and, like, we're going to have to fight our way out of here because because the, the congregation is about to jump him because his wedding vows were so horrible. And then he, he turns it around, because he starts it off with, as you know, Jackie and I met at the bar. And, uh, and she looked over me, and, 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 a, and you could tell she wanted me. And I was just sitting there, and I was like, my eyes were like as big as, you know, golf balls. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe you just said that. And then he ends up turning it around to where at the end of it, it was like a slow golf clap. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, he just pulled it off and made this the most endearing, like, empathetic speech that I'd ever heard. And I, I couldn't believe that you did it. Because I, I knew about it. I was like, he just died on this. And we're, anybody in the military uniform is dead because they all hate him right now. And, and by virtue, they're going to hate the rest of us. Yeah, the, the difference was the vows that I recovered with, I had wrote down on a one sheet of paper. But I started just winging it, talking about how we met and made out in the bar. And I think that's yeah. where I, I, I read the crowd. And I was like, all right, I need to go back to the paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it, it was it was truly incredible uh, because I was like, wow, uh, uh, unreal. I, I talk about that all the time. I was like, one of the best recoveries I've ever heard. If that's on tape, if you've got that on tape somewhere, please send it to me because I need a reference point so other people can share this. Like, you know, this was truly incredible because I don't do it justice. By any means. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, all right. So you graduate IOC. 
what unit do you check into and uh, talk, talk about your operational experience? Yeah, so I checked into 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines uh, out of Camp Lejeune. Uh, it was assigned to lead the company 3rd Platoon, and the first day I checked in, reported to my company commander, Captain Hanson, and he's just like, hey, Tim McConnell, that's, uh, that's your new your staff sergeant right there, uh, who'll be your platoon sergeant. And he basically points him out right as he's stepping up for an awards formation, where he's getting awarded a Navy Com with a V, uh, and they read his, his citation out. And it's just like, you know, under heavy enemy fire, there's a medical evacuation. I'm sitting there, I'm like, how humbling is it to, to step in front of this guy and be like, hey, well, technically I'm in charge of this platoon, but have absolutely all legal authority, but no moral authority at all. You know, yeah, John, because, I, I'm sorry, everything you're saying, when I stood in front of my platoon in 1-8, so the same time you went to 3-2, I went to 1-8, they had just gotten back from Phantom Fury. And my first formation where as a platoon commander, you stand in front of your platoon, three-fourths of the platoon was in sweats. So, you know, I do my initial high, high, I'm the second lieutenant, your new platoon commander, we're going to have hard training, blah, 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 blah. And I pull my platoon sergeant aside after the fact, I was like, why were they not in camis? Why is most of the platoon in sweats? And he's like, sir, all of them still have shrapnel in their bodies from Phantom Fury. And like in that moment, it's like, oh my God, like I don't deserve or shouldn't be here. Like I, I just felt like I was, it was a low for me because I was almost like questioning on like their new platoon commander. Then I realized what war heroes all of them were. And I was like, man, this is a huge responsibility. Oh yeah. I mean, incredible. And I think that like going at it in the, the point of, I was lucky because the, the company commander had told me, you know, Jonathan, Hey, this is, Staff Sergeant John Allnut, uh, you know, in kind of briefing on the front end, and being able to hear that citation read. And then afterwards, he still got the medal pinned to his chest. And he, you know, he comes over to me, he's like, sir, nice to meet you. And I was like, you know, Staff Sergeant, it's incredible to meet you. It's an honor. I was like, you know, you, let's, go grab, let's go grab a cup of coffee. And I remember just sitting there saying to him, I was like, Staff Sergeant, our, we've got a mission, you know, to accomplish the mission and to keep our Marines alive. And judging by what was just pinned on your chest, you have the – the moral authority, you have the, the capability of knowing how to do that well, but we've got to work together as, as a team to make sure that we, we accomplish the mission and keep our memories alive. And at that point, it really just kind of became a team effort. Personalities aside, you know, there were times we just definitely disagreed, uh, you know, but ultimately it came down to and just it was just like, you know, if we disagreed, you'd be like, right face forward march. Yes, sir. At the end of the day, we both understood that our primary mission was accomplish the mission, keep everybody alive. You know, it's it was – and I think that's what made it made us successful as a unit. So we went out to Mojave Viper. Those are memories in my uh, in my mind. I remember our battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel DeGarcier, being like, you know, of course we're all Spartans at that point, and we wanted to run Range 410 Alpha with uh, bayonets fixed, which was a great idea for muzzle awareness until I got stabbed in the leg by one of my squad leaders, Sergeant Raphael Sosa, uh, when he was coming in to debrief me. And <laughs> he comes in, and then he just kind of takes a knee, and then... <laughs> looks down and his bayonet's sticking in my leg and I look up at him and he's like oh shit sir I'm sorry and I'm you know this heavy Brooklyn that box accent and just I mean I, it, it actually I was so surprised it, it hurt but not that bad it didn't go that deep but it was uh I was like muzzle awareness so some muzzle awareness uh, we deployed uh to the outskirts of Fallujah uh we were at battalion was based out of Habania uh which is just south of Takeda and uh just west of uh, Fallujah and my uh, company uh, ended up getting the eastern edge right up to ECB-5, an entry control point five, uh, Fallujah. My platoon in particular had uh, OP Redskins uh, on top of Route Michigan, right there on the edge of, right right outside of ECB-5, uh, Fallujah. So we uh, we patrolled there. 
Yeah, so for, for all the listeners that, that haven't been deployed to Iraq, there was two main routes, Michigan and Mobile. And anyone that deployed to Iraq knew those two key routes. Well, I guess any Marine, because uh, most of those, those two key routes went through uh, Al-Anbar province, where a lot of the heavy fighting was between uh, Fallujah and Ramadi. Uh, and those were the two, they were almost like, like highways. Think of like a, a interstate. That's almost what Mobile and Michigan were. So they're almost reference points anytime anyone talks about Iraq. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so I, I essentially lived on, on Route Michigan. And so we had set up constitutional wire all, all around it and lived on top of the bridge for about five months. It was essentially a patrol base for us. Uh, it was a numbers game uh, is what I, we eventually figured out. And they wanted to see how many patrols we were doing a day. And so we would we had a platoon size platoon reinforced. So we had a mortar squad and 60 millimeter mortar section and also uh, two machine gun squads attached to us. So we were, our TO for the platoon was 67 Marines. Uh, so we were pretty heavy. And so what we would do is have a squad and we would push out patrols from there and patrol the surrounding area to set up a good offense. Uh, good, best defense is a good offense was my opinion on that one. And uh, we would set up patrol bases from there and then they would have squad size patrol bases and then do uh, out in the town and then spend maybe 48 hours out there and do patrols from there. So all in all, we, our weekly reports would be like, yeah, we did 75 or 100 patrols in a, in a week. Uh, and it was all based off of, you know, they may be a fire team size patrol, but they were out there, um, you know, hooking a jabber and having a good time out there. Uh, our main threat was not small arms fire. It was mostly uh, indirect fire and IEDs. Uh, I, I remember our worst day, I think was six IED strikes. And, uh, and then we took uh, IDF all on the same day. And it was just like, you know, it, it was so frustrating to find an enemy that you never saw. Um, that was probably the most frustrating thing for us is that, you know, we would be uh, dealing with, there were times we had small arms fire, but the most time it was dealing with IED strikes. Uh, had a, a night that I'll remember for the rest of my life was September 1st, 2006. Uh, we had a, an IED strike uh, on a dismounted patrol and uh, lost a Marine. Uh, Lance Corporal Cliff Gola was a, a fire team leader for third squad that was there and had three Marines that were wounded. And obviously Lance Corporal Cliff Gola was killed. You know, he was leading his fire team uh, on point uh, out there in Iraq and, uh, you know, just doing what any 17 to 20 year old Lance Corporal would do that we're asking them to do, you know, the weight of the nations on them being the point man on patrols. And, uh, and he, Stepped on a essentially a, a victim actuated IED. It was a pressure strip. It was a, connected to a 155 shell that was right behind a uh, a jersey barrier, and his entire fire team was essentially wounded in that uh, attack. Um, and uh, the night after Gold was killed, Armageddon Six, you know, calls into you know says you know OP Redskins, OP Redskins, uh, Armageddon Six were requesting permission to enter in front of the lines. Of course, we just think they're going to drive through. Well, then. All of a sudden, the Humvee stops. Now steps uh, a general, and it was General Neller, uh, who ended up becoming commandant of the Marine Corps. And he's like, "Where's your lieutenant at?" Of course, I'm standing right there. A few seconds later, he's like, "He's like, what the f happened last night?" And I was like, "Well, uh, you know, we had an ID strike, and we lost." And he was like, "I've read the f report. What actually happened?" And I was like, "Well, you know." And at this point, I just take an ash chewing from uh, General Neller. I haven't quite forgiven him for that, even though forgiven him yet for that, but it, and even though it's the comrade of the Marine Corps, I think I still uh, I promised myself if I ever made him, I'd punch him as a civilian, I'd punch him in the face. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things of, you know, one of those times and you just got to right face the forward march and, and uh, take your ass to and go with it. We maintain contact with the family. Uh, you know, I was texting with his sister uh, 
uh, a couple days ago. Uh, Meridian actually just bought a vessel, uh, a ship that we're using for some of our security, and we just named it after his brother, or after her brother, so after Cliff. Um, it's awesome. So, yeah, we've got a, a, a P-76 will be rolling around the Red Sea, uh, named the, the, the Gola. We'll be uh, rolling around uh, the Red Sea in between Saudi Arabia and Djibouti, and uh, just got back from Djibouti last night. And uh, All right, you're jumping, you're jumping forward. We're not there in the story yet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so you do your Iraq deployment. Did you you did a second Iraq deployment as the XO yeah. too, right? Yeah, XO eight eighty one platoon commander. So I dual headed on that one. Yeah. So for the for the listeners in the infantry community, typically the best platoon commander is selected for the eighty one platoon out of the generation of platoon commanders because of how technical and how tough that job is. So it just speaks to the recognized abilities of the command in what he was doing out there for his first deployment. But then when you were the eighty one platoon commander. You became the weapons XO, which I would submit is maybe the the second hardest, or you know, depending on who you talk to, the the other most coveted position for a lieutenant. And you were doing both of them, so that's pretty incredible. That was awesome. I love being the XO. One of the greatest jobs in the world for me. I loved working for Captain Lundgren, who I now believe is Colonel Lundgren, who's based up in DC right now. We actually, it's funny. We just released an episode yesterday with Josh Rogerson. And he was talking about Lundgren. So Lundgren's like the one guy we've name dropped in his show like multiple times, but everyone has nothing but awesome things to say about him. But yes, he is a 06. He's done the PhD program. He will be a general officer. Uh, great guy. Yeah, he, he is a great guy. He was an incredible guy to work for. And, and just being his XO and you know, doing everything I could to make sure uh, you know, he was set up for success. I wouldn't say that Cax was a good example of that. Uh, being an 81's platoon commander there was, had definitely had its problems. Uh, with lost rounds, they were for some reason the, the logo and I hated each other after Mojave Viper because I would turn in ammunition to him, and then for some odd reason his log train would either drop him off the, uh, they would fall off the truck, and all of a sudden eighty one rounds were sitting in the middle of Mojave Viper inside the boxes, or basically they got confused with live rounds at Dunnage, and they turned in live rounds to be burned at Dermo. And yeah, that's a pretty out. big deal, John. I'm I'm surprised you survived that, to be honest with you. I had my my rights read to me twice at Mojave Viper because of yeah. that. It, it was an, I almost got relieved from command there. Um, and then, yeah, and so it, it was interesting. But when we deployed in my second deployment, I was actually battle position Da Nang, which was 55 miles from Al-Qaeda. What year, what year was the second deployment, John? 07. Uh, October of 07 through May of 08. Yeah, so it was actually the most non-kinetic deployment I could have ever possibly imagined. So going from the first deployment, you know, to this one was was an incredible experience because it was it was like a, a tactical pause. Uh, the entire deployment, I think we had one IED strike, and that was off of, uh, and it didn't even go off on one of our units. It went off on a, a guy that was carrying a bunch of sheep. The guy was kind of trying to stay away from one of our mobile assault units. So he goes and he hits the IED that was meant for our guys. He ended up being fine, but all the sheep were just absolutely obliterated. So it was warm pink mist everywhere, sheep parts everywhere. And, uh, and so our guys run up on the patrol, and they're just like, are you kidding me? This would have been some great food. We already got it cooked nice and rare. Uh, so to go from, from the first deployment to that, was the, it was almost like a decrescendo from, you know, the first deployment, and which is something, almost like a time to relax. Uh, it, obviously, it wasn't, you know, we're out there patrolling every day uh, and staying busy. But, you know, I remember one time, the only time we ever had our superior officers ever come visit was they were doing the helo resupply, which is the only way we really would ever get resupplied with fuel and uh, water via limits uh, on a CH-43 or CH-53 
you know, drops its blivets and all of a sudden uh, moves over and then lands. And then two Marines get off the helicopter. And we're like, oh, you know, no big deal. Well, then all of a sudden the uh, security down at the LZ was like, flash, 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 base shield six, base shield eight, on deck. Uh, and so literally you saw our camp just erupt and uh, everybody's going to shaving and, you know, and, and trying to hygiene at that point because you know, we, we didn't even have, we, had, we were shaving and bathing from out of water bottles. We didn't have running water. Uh, and so, you know, we were still uh, at that point a very primitive camp. And so uh, they showed up and, and everybody, we, we, at that point I told them, I was like, don't give them a ride from the LZ. The LZ was probably about 500 meters outside of friendly lines. I was like, don't give them a, a ride, make them walk. And so that gave us a few extra minutes to everybody share. So everybody, you know how it is in the, you know, when you're deployed, everybody's gray, you know, like black, white, Asian, whatever type of rain you are, everybody's covered in moon dust. And it's just how we lived, uh, just the, the filth that we lived in, uh, because our, our fob was, was covered in six to eight inches of moon dust. And, uh, and so everybody's gray, but then everybody has a fresh, clean face after that, right? Right, right as the battalion commander rolls up. And there's nothing you can do but just be like, smile and be like, yep, this is it. You know, like, I, we're, all, we're all shaved now. It was pretty funny. But uh, we, the problem, the biggest fear that we had was fighting boredom. And I remember the Marines being like, literally having to give an order to the Marines, hey, because you have desert rats everywhere. And, uh, and we would catch them on those sticky pads. And so the problem with Marines is that, you give them, if they're bored, then they're going to find different creative ways to kill the rats. And, uh, <laughs> and I literally had to give an order, no dousing the rats with diesel and then lighting them on fire. And the reason being is because a Marine did this, and when you light a, a rat on fire on top of the sticky pad, it does two things. It weakens the adhesive so the rats can get away. <laughs> but two, it gives the rats superhuman strength or super rat strength so they can get off the adhesive pad and then one of them, a flaming rat, while on fire, ran into a, a crevice. Well, where was the crevice? It was our ammo depot. And so we had a flaming rat that went into the ammo depot, and it was just like, oh, shit, we're going to get blowing this place up. And so, really, that, I mean, that's the type of stuff you fight. You have to fight. But you have to give it a order, like, hey, listen, Marines, don't light rats on fire because they're going to go into the ammo depot. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So. All right, so after, <laughs> after the second deployment, what, what drove you to get out? So what was the thought process, and what were your goals and ambitions at that point? So pre-joining the Marine Corps, I'd actually taken the LSAT, and so I had uh, a valid uh, LSAT score, and from Iraq, I, had, uh, I applied to law school. Well, while I was in Iraq, I got accepted to Alabama, Sanford, a few law schools, and then I also you know, had orders to do a second recon, so it was a decision point there. And my, I called my sister, and I was like, hey, listen, I got orders to a second recon, which is my dream. Also got, you know, got into law school. She had known that. And uh, she said, what do you think? Uh, I was like, what do you think? And she was like, well, I think it, you know, mom's going to say she's proud of you. Uh, she's like, and I think it'll kill dad. I mean, my dad just had a lot of problems with the point, just you know, from a standpoint of a father, uh, you know, just having to say bye to his son. You know, from an anxiety standpoint, there's a point where he was flying up to see me the night before he left, uh, or a couple weeks before I left, and the night before he, he almost had a heart attack, just the anxiety of coming to see me, he couldn't fly, so he ended up having to fly a couple of days later, um, and it just, and she's like, I think it's going to kill dad, so at that point, I just said, you know what, I'm going to get out, I'm going to go to law school, so I did that, I made that decision, and which ended up being an incredible decision, uh, even though I do regret it quite a bit, I love the Marine Corps. I uh, missed the, the morale, being around Marines. And uh, so I got out of the Marine Corps 
or I came back from Iraq in May, and the law school gave me an opportunity to take one of the classes during the summer school, which was incredible just as a transition period because I've been out of the Marine Corps, been out of school for a couple of years. And they said, hey, you can take one class during the summer. It'll lighten your load for the fall. It, but it meant I had to start on like May 20-something, uh, and I was getting back from Iraq like May 15th on, from Advon. And so I literally ch- got back from Iraq on Advon, spent 10 days, and checked out of the Marine Corps in essentially two weeks, drove through the night, and started law school the next day. Uh, oh, my that, God. That, that, so I hadn't been home at this point. So I just I, I transitioned. To that. that was my transition. Uh, so I did subs and taps and all that type of stuff. Just and I started law school the next day. And remember the, the first day of law school, you know, I'm still high and tight, you know, still in good shape and all that type of stuff. And I said, get, get, get into law school, sit in you know, class on the first day. Of course, I'm there at least 15 minutes early. And the student comes and sits next to me, long hair, you know, hippie. And I was like, and I was like, man, I was like, who's this hippie ass mother effer sitting next to me? Like, how dare you? And he's like, you mind if I sit here? And I was like, sure, whatever. And ended up being one of my best friends, uh, an awesome guy, helped my transition a, a great bit. And John, uh, John Gibbons is his name. Ended up being the son of like Alabama, one of Alabama's most famous attorneys. He's actually the, the main shareholder of the Cochran firm, Johnny Cochran's law firm. And this kid sitting next to me. I didn't find all this out until my third year of law school when I went home with him uh, to, you know, to visit, <laughs> visit, visit his house. Literally walking to his house. I mean, he's a normal college kid, nicest or law school kid. He's 22 years, 23 years old nicest guy in the entire world. I walk into his house and I'm like, his parents' house. And I'm like, holy cow. I mean, they literally have a room that's painted like the Sistine Chapel. It's, and it's the size of the Sistine Chapel. And this house is 40,000 40, square feet. And I'm like, holy crap. I was like, where did this come from? I was like, look, I mean, my jaw is on the floor. I was like, what are you, a like, drug dealer? It's like, are you kidding me? Like, I knew his dad was a successful, a successful attorney, but I had no clue. And his mom just starts laughing. She's like, well, I'm glad you didn't know. I would have whooped his butt, you know, like, and just, you know, talking in the wonderful Southern Plain. And it just, that's how humble this guy was. And he comes from, you know, I mean, his father's had over a billion dollars in settlements. I attribute him to really helping with my transition, uh, you know, back to civilian life of just having someone that's normal and, and, you know, that befriended me the first day when I didn't want to have anything to do with any civilians. You know, I mean, come back to Iraq and then you're, sitting in law school, 22-year-olds who think they know everything in the world. And, uh, and then you've got, you know, someone like that who's just down to earth and who's just like, yeah, you know, just there to listen and to be your friend. So, Did you have a job lined up? Because you're finishing up, you know, you got this one friend that his dad's real successful, but like what was the future looking like at that point? Right at the end of the first year of law school is when the Marist Alabama was hijacked. And so uh, that was in April, four days prior to Easter 2009. And I was just like, this is stupid. I mean, we're watching on Fox News like, why in the world are we not guarding these ships? And, you know, asking the question of every Marine in the world, be like, how can you let a U.S. flag ship get hijacked? And so I ended up talking to uh, some people at a shipping company down here in Mobile, which is where I was from, and just said, you know, listen, why are you not guarding your ships? And they're like, listen, it's wild because it's not that easy. And I was like, well, it can't be that hard. And so talking to them about, I mean, as an infantry officer, you understand that it's a, three, a ship is a three-sided fortress. No one's going to be coming over to bow. And so how are you going to guard the ship? You know, it, it's, you know, and so they're like, well, what kind of weapons would you use? Would you use? And I said, well, I would ideally use something that has a flat parabola of a round. It's not going to fluctuate more than three feet off its uh, mean so that you are shooting because you're shooting from an unknown distance at an unknown height. It's fluctuating constantly because of wave height and because of the vessels. And they all are sitting there looking at me like I've got something growing out of my forehead. And I'm like, exactly. Uh, I got you now. And, uh, 
you know, and, and, and so it ended up going well for me. You know, of course, they had some legal questions as well. Well, I just finished a year of law school. I'd almost finished a year of law school at that point. It was like I could speak at least cocktail party dangerous on uh, on how to you know defend against torts and, and stuff like that. And so, uh, and I knew a little bit about the international traffic and large regulations and so exporting firearms because I'd done some research. And so I, I said, listen, this isn't rocket science. If you only do, I'll start a company and do your security for you. And they said, well, if you start a company, you'll get every contract you've got. And that was 11 years ago. So that's how Meridian was born, uh, and we've been in business for 11 years, and you know it's been incredible. So I, I never even entertained a job uh, with anyone else. Um, I remember sitting in law school my second year, and the dean of law school had gotten his LLM, uh, his master's of law in international law, focused on piracy. He had written about this piracy in the Straits of Malacca, in uh, which is off Singapore, in the early 19, uh, 1990s. So that's what he'd studied. And so he knew a lot about international law and piracy. And he was, just, so he'd heard about what I was doing. So he called me into his office, you know, hey, can you write, help me write some briefs on this? And because yeah, I've got a speech in front of the Second Circuit on international law and piracy because it was really ramping up. And I was like, I'll make some notes for you. I'll be glad to. And he's like, well, I don't want you to do as a research project. And I was like, he's like, I'll pay you. I was like, no, because that would mean I'd actually have to do work. Like, work, I'm too busy right now. And he's like, well, how much, how much money are you making? And I remember sitting and thinking, kind of on top of my head, well, we've got three teams out um, right now. It's 8,200, and I was like, okay. And I was like, well, about 24,000. He's like, a month? And I was like, no, that's what we made today. And, uh, and he was like, Jonathan, don't ever practice law. Keep doing what you're doing. And so we were, we were, we were crushing it. And we were making you know, 24 grand a day when we had three teams out, and we were just doing incredible. And uh, I mean, that's back in the day. We were paying guys a thousand a day to go out for us. Uh, of course, the rates now are a lot less um, because of you know just the demand and how everybody's gone and undercut the undercut each other. Uh, I had a call three hours ago with India, and they were talking about paying guys, you know, team leaders, Indian team leaders, thirty three dollars a day. And it's just like, geez, I mean, it's just it's amazing, um, you know, with with the rest of the world to work for. Uh, and whereas you've got Marines who go out there and work for one hundred twenty five dollars a day. And, uh, and be happy. And I'm like, I don't know that I want to hire someone who's willing to work overseas for $125 a day. I just, you know, I, I think that you can, you can make that money. You can make $300 a day if you just pressure wash, you know, go be a pressure washer or, or you know, do lawn care, at least in the South. Anyway, I digress on that point. Uh, you know, so I started company, you know, my first year of law school. And so I never looked back. Uh, you know, I did an internship that summer with the district attorney's office in Mobile while I started the company. And, uh, and it was a good experience. Uh, at that point, I realized, like, I need to, I've never quit anything in my life, uh, but law school was definitely getting in the way of, of running the company. I was literally flying from London back to Tuscaloosa for the week, go to law school, and then go to Singapore, and then come back, and literally was flying across the world in between classes. I, I'd schedule my classes just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which is something great you can do in law school. So I was going to school three days a week, and then running the company the rest of the time, and I was like, I've got to finish law school. So I just packed my schedule, took as many classes as I possibly could, and uh, at once went through the summers, ended up graduating law school a semester early, and then took the bar. Not too much of a discredit than Alabama lawyers, but as long as you know how many horses are, should be behind a carriage and uh, you know that you should have a yellow triangle in the back of your carriage, you should be fine. That's pretty much uh, the Alabama um, bar exam. <laughs> not, not really. It was it was a lot. Of, I studied. I did study my ass off for that thing, uh, and ended up passing it. Um, and uh, found out passed when 
April 27th, 2011, realized at that point I will never practice, I will never practice traditional law. I keep, a, I do keep an active law license uh, because I do consider myself practicing in the international traffic and barge regulations. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll write up contracts and every once in a while and stuff like that or, or approve drafts. Uh, but then, you know, having a law license to be able to do that, uh, you know, it really has helped a lot. It helps every day in business as well. But yeah, so that's, that was law school. Um, did you, did you start the company with a partner? Or did you start solo? I'm, I'm, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. Yeah. So this is actually, it's one of those things that uh, I ended up starting because when you're looking at it, I was so afraid to get out there and go on my own. I remember calling my buddy, Mark Matsky. Do you remember Matsky? Yeah. No, that's what, I remember people telling me Matsky was your partner and you, yeah. you maybe bought him out, but I, I didn't know what, what that was like. Yeah. So like, I'll, that's one thing I would encourage anybody uh, out there to do. Um, if you're going to do it, it's so intimidating to go in on your alone, but do it. Uh, you know, I ended up partnering with Matsky um, and saying like, Hey, can, let's, we help me do this. And Matsky is absolute tactical, strategic, every type of genius, uh, incredible dude. And he and I bounced a lot of ideas off each other. The problem was, is that he was still active duty in the Marine Corps uh, during all of that. And, it was 100% of everything I did. Uh, after you know a few months, I just said, "Hey, listen, let me buy you out, and I'll do it 100%." Because it, in the long term, especially when you hit the lows, there are times when there wasn't enough money for a paycheck for me. In 2017, 2018, each we had uh, two clients declare bankruptcy, each owing us well over a quarter million dollars apiece. And there's times when there's been times where I have not taken a paycheck, uh, numerous times actually throughout, you know where. We've gotten into cash flow issues. We've always been good on paper, uh, but that doesn't mean you're good on cash flow. I think it's easier when you have one person who's like, hey, listen, if you have two people, that's two two families you've got to feed. If it's one, it's just one family you've got to feed. If it's possible, do it on your own. Matsky, I think I bought out after maybe about three or four months, uh, have been alone ever since. And every venture that Meridian's expanded into, it's always been 100% one person. We did that the other day, or in March, Meridian acquired another company uh, called M&G Maritime. And, uh, and the guys were like, well, hey, let's re retain, you know, 50% or 25%. I was like, no, like, Meridian's going to take 100%. Uh, we'll pay more for it, but that way there's no splitting equity. There's no no questioning into any decisions. It's like, hey, it's, I'm 100% accountable for it, either a success or, or a failure. And that that has been great because the buck stops 100% with me. You know, no one's got as much skin in the game as I do. There, there's times when I have, you know, as a for cash flow reasons, I've taken – no dividend or I've taken, I've, you know, said, Hey, I mean, there were times where I literally said, I, I don't get paid for two months and you just got to deal with it. Uh, there was a time in 2011 that we had uh, 700,000 out uh, in a company declared bankruptcy, $700,000 owed to you. And we were just in a cash, a major cash crunch at that point. And I told our guys, we couldn't even pay our operators. And I said, Oh, I said, we couldn't pay them that week and i just said listen guys uh, if you trust me I, I know i'll get the money to you but if you don't trust me then i'll pay you today on paypal uh and i'll put it on my credit card and uh do it that way but i know i'll have the money for you and so literally i you know put seventy thousand dollars for the payroll on my credit card that in that week and paid out our guys who needed it and then the rest of it uh you know i knew it was going to come in eventually uh, from other clients and stuff like that because we were diversified out there but you know one client saying, hey, we're stiffing you for 700 grand, it hurts. Um, and so 
all those credit cards are my name or my social security number, you're talking about a, a major uh, hit uh, to, to your bottom line, to your credit score and everything like that. You know, that's where I, being able to make those decisions, I'm like, hey, listen, like, you know, I could have told our guys, hey, man, you're going to get paid whenever I get paid. Uh, but being able to have the trust with them and say, listen, if you don't trust me, I'll pay you today, but you are going to get paid. For me, I hate owing people money. Our reputation in the industry is we're going to pay you within two to if you don't get paid within two days of sending us an invoice, and that's just for us to check our email to get the email, the invoice processed, it's a it's a, about a miracle. Uh, we pay everybody within two days, uh, just because we, we're known in the industry for being able to pay our you know, pay our debts and to pay our um, invoices quickly. Um, and I think that carries a lot of weight. A lot of people want to work for us. Uh, we've never had to recruit. Uh, people just send us their email, uh, send us their resumes via email, and it's just it's one of those things that's uh, that's never been an issue. I have another question. Have you ever, like your company provides private security to commercial shipping. Have you ever had to shoot at somebody? So we've been attacked 23 times in 11 years. Uh, so in those 23 times, every single time, we've always diffused the situation using pyro. Uh, so a flare or something like that, or simply just waving the rifles. Uh, we've never actually had to fire a shot at a single pirate. So that's great news from a liability standpoint, uh, being able to tell our insurers that. We just insure, we just renewed our insurance with Woods with one of the Lloyd syndicates in London, being able to say we've been hit 23 times, we've never ever fired a shot. It's something that really keeps our premiums low. Um, so knock on wood, we'll keep that up and, uh, and hopefully be able to continue it. Just out of curiosity, who do you find is most likely to attack one of the ships? Is it just like an individual civilian or do you think it's an organized you know, syndicate? Like, I'm just curious about who's attacking you guys or your ships. 2011 to 2014, it was was Somali pirates for sure. I mean, they were organized, very organized. Would go out in what you know fashions called pirate action groups, HAGs. They operated, uh, you know, using motherships, uh, so they could be a thousand miles off the coast of Somalia, operating out there. So they were a very impressive group. They we found that basically you had some person, some people had certain jobs. So one person would have been their job would have been, hey, we're the uh, we're the, we are the pirates, the, the hijackers. Then they would hijack the vessel and sail it to the small, off the coast of Somalia and anchor it. And then those guys would go get back on the skiff and go back out and hijack another vessel. But then the other job was for basically the, the shore patrol. They would come and occupy the vessel. They would occupy it with between 80 and 120 pirates uh, or Somalis would sit there and be the security force that would be on board. And then you'd have a cook that would come on board and cook for everybody. And so it was a very sophisticated – then you have someone who was the negotiator. Wait, wait, wait. The Somali pirates would come on board and cook for everybody? For the, the 80 to 120-man uh, force that would occupy the vessel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so they would come and bring goats and stuff like that and cook and just sit there and eat cod all day. Uh, you know, cod is their, their, their drug that they uh, use in Eastern Africa and, uh, and throughout the Horn of Africa. And, and so – the, the average period of captivity was seven to 12 months. They'd be there for a while. And they're just holding the ship and the cargo for ransom. Is that what their, their goal is? Correct. Yeah. The, the cargo, the ship, and the uh, personnel for ransom. They were so sophisticated that they would look up, especially if you're a publicly traded company, they'd be like, hey, we know you have 100, 220 million cash on hand. So we want 40 million. Uh, so they, they were not, it's a very sophisticated group. Uh, they knew exactly what they were doing, but they were, you know, one or two negotiators throughout Somalia that would negotiate it. Uh, but obviously, like, the pirates would go and take, you know, one pirate action group, supposedly, I mean, had five to six hijacked. So they'd hijacked five to six vessels. Now, out of that two million or seven million, which they ended up settling on, those guys would get, like, 80 grand, which 80 grand in, in 
know, East Africa, North Africa, was quite a lot of money. Right. Uh, but you know, so they, after hijacking four or five vessels, they were investing that into, you know, basically buying property in Kenya, uh, north of uh, Nairobi is kind of where a lot of that. If you follow a lot of the money, and kind of where it went. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I think a lot of people when they hear Somali pirates, they just think of some guy in a wooden boat, you know, charging yeah, up on a, on a ship. Exactly. I'm fascinated to hear that it was it was organized like that. And do you think, yeah. if you don't mind me asking, I mean, do you think that it's there was a higher level coordinator to that? Because I mean, that's pretty sophisticated to to take your proceeds from a criminal activity and then roll it into an actual investment. That's really hard hard to believe, actually. There were there was a lot of speculation that it was going to Al Shabaab, uh, which is uh, Al Qaeda's affiliate in Eastern Africa. Whether those reports were definitive in saying that yes, the money did or did not, or whether it loosely connected to Al Shabaab, that's above my pay grade. Uh, I don't think it did. Uh, I think it was just how how well they were organized on that side. You said up to fourteen, it was the Somali pirates. Who was it after fourteen? Uh, so fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, there were no attacks. So putting armed guards on board vessels worked. Uh, it did an incredible job, almost to the point where we put ourselves out of business, you know, where <laughs> there have been attacks. There are attacks every once in a while now, like what, three weeks ago there was an attack. The most recent attack was right outside the Straits of Babel Mandab, which is the strait that connects Djibouti and Yemen. But that was actually, that attack ended up being the Yemeni Coast Guard, which no one knew they had a Yemeni Coast Guard. Yemen had a Coast Guard, and it was just some guys who decided they were going to become the Yemeni Coast Guard. And so they literally just came on inspected the vessel, vessel, made sure, you know, we're looking for bribes, but then they, they buggered off after a few, you know, after a couple hours. Uh, so they weren't your traditional pirates, uh, but it still was reported as a pirate attack. It's amazing. Uh, the UK NTO, uh, which is I think the Maritime Transit Organization, which is based out of Dubai, is really the leader in reporting all of the attacks and uh, coordination of, of vessels transiting through that area. So it's pretty impressive. Okay, so on a transition topics, so somewhere, you'll have to correct me on the year, but just remembering the timeline, it was around like 14, 15, you made a run for the federal Senate, and again, correct the details if I'm wrong here, but you challenged the Republican incumbent by the name of Shelby. Can you just talk to me from the beginning of what made you want to go for this run, and then I'll, I'll hit you with follow-up questions? Yeah, I mean, so it's one of those things of, just like 2001, September 11th, you know, like you're sitting there and you're like, man, I, you have a call to serve, you know, after a, a catastrophic event in our country. Well, we have a catastrophic event in our country right now. We did in 2016, like, you know, our country's not heading in the right direction. We're spinning ourselves to uh, oblivion. Like, I've made a lot of money doing what I'm doing, and I felt a call to serve uh, and to, you know, say, hey, listen, like, this guy's part of the problem. He's a Republican. I'm a, generally a Republican as well tend to be more libertarian, but, um, you know, conservative. But this guy claims to be a conservative, and, you know, he's the chairman of, of – he's going to be the chairman of appropriations, but yet he, he brings billions upon billions of money dollars into Alabama. There's 13 buildings in the state of Alabama that are named after this guy. You know, these monuments to Richard Shelby, I'm like, that's not what this is all about. It shouldn't be about a career politician, you know, or how much money you can bring to the country – bring to the state – should be about what's best for the country and what's best for the country is controlling our spending and obviously keeping us safe. And so really it came down to like, what do I believe in is the American dream? And that is leave our, our children a better life than what we have. And we can't do that if our country continues on the path that it's going down and, or that it was going down in 2016. I think we've, we've done a little bit better now though our spending hasn't gotten under control. And, and that was kind of my main point. And so I you know, felt like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go after this and throw everything I could. I put, $172,000 of my own money into the race 
and essentially just said, hey, listen, I'm going to go balls to the wall and, and challenge this guy. And all right, all right hold, hold on, John. I want to jump in there and ask a question. Shelby typically doesn't have a lot of competition, has been in the seat for a while. Here you are, a very successful entrepreneur. You've got all this war experience. You, to me, are something that everyone should be voting into office. So you posed a real threat. And all of a sudden, you enter the race, and then a bunch of other people start joining the race, and then start just attacking you. Coincidence or deliberate undermining attack? Yeah, so I mean, five people were in the race Shelby, myself, and the three other people. All, all three of them ended up challenging, quote unquote, you're the, entering the race after it had been, you know, essentially rumored that I was going to end up making that run. Um, in that respect, yeah, I think they were put in there to uh, just to take away from me. Of the three, none of them got higher than two or three percent, and so it was definitely just a battle between Shelby and I. Was, I got twenty-seven percent. I think we got fifty-something, fifty-seven or fifty-eight. That's crazy. I mean, that's really tough to beat when somebody's got twenty million dollars and the capability to add four other people in the race to water it down, and all they do is attack you and not him. I mean, that, how do you beat that? That's, I mean, that's why I'm such a huge fan of term limits. I mean, I think that you, you've got to have term limits to get people out of there. I mean, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, or whether it's um, Lindsey Graham. I realize Lindsey Graham probably is a great senator for the state of South Carolina, but you know what? He's been there too long. Uh, I mean, I'm a Republican saying that. Uh, Richard Shelby has been there too long. You, you've got to get fresh blood in there. People, people kept saying, well, Jonathan, what, you know, what, don't sign the term limits pledge because what if you do, you're doing a good job? And I'm like, look, if that's the case, if I'm doing such an incredible job and I'll resign or I'll serve my two terms and after that I'll step down and become a become the chief of staff for the next guy. The service doesn't isn't restricted to being a US senator. I was like, you can serve and be the chief of staff, you know, if you're that irreplaceable, which no one is. And that's people don't realize. I mean, like these, you know, or there's another job you could fulfill, whether it's go and serve in the administration as a undersecretary for defense or you know, undersecretary for health and human services if you're that incredible. But it's not meant for people to go up there and serve for a lifetime. Richard Shelby said one time, you know, he's going to serve until he comes home, you know, feet first enough in a pine box. It's just like, so he, he's going to serve until he dies. And I, I just fundamentally disagree with that. People are like, people kept saying, listen, Richard Shelby, so who, who are you running for? And I was like, I'm running for you know, U.S. Senate in Alabama. And they're like, well, Shelby's seat? And I was like, it's not Shelby's seat, it's your seat. Launch well, the people of Alabama, not, not to some politician who literally has done nothing in his life except for serving the Alabama state legislature as an Alabama U.S. congressman in Alabama and then as a U.S. senator. Uh, I mean, to me, I, we've got to get rid of people like that. We need people who've started their own businesses like y'all, who've gone and fought the trenches of business, who understand what it's like down the front of the paycheck, not just the back of one, you know, and yeah. understand that like, hey, this is cash flow. Like, we've got to actually do this and understand that what does it mean to actually hire someone for an eight to five job? It's not, you know, it's not, it's not easy. Or like, hey, when you hire one, of, you know, if you have five people and you hire a sixth person, you're not gaining twenty percent uh, work. You're actually everybody's productivity is probably going to go down a little bit because you hired hired somebody extra. I mean, it's just understanding that is it's only something a business owner would know how to do. That's why I think we need more people who are business owners running for office, not uh, people who've been in government for. 30 years so it apparently wasn't meant to be but i have no regrets maybe the old bastard spent 20 million uh which was uh quite the return on investment if i spent 470 he spent 20 million you know but I ended up losing so it apparently wasn't meant to be but i have no regrets john john brother you're saying no regrets as if this story is over maybe i'm an optimist i do believe the wave is coming 
I've got four more years uh, to finish my military career. I've got some political ambitions. I do think the tide is turning on the career politician and that, you know, just like you said, the people in the trenches that went out there and fought either in the military or fought to be a small business owner. I think that that is coming. And I think like the people that we're describing, the career politicians should be worried if they're not because of the, the stagnation and the infighting and the, the derisiveness that kind of exists now. I think we need leaders and some common sense people in there. So do you still have ambitions? Or are you going to go back and make another run in it? I know even though you only, you spent, you know, half a million dollars of your own money, you did kind of make a name for yourself, at least getting in there and getting a third of the votes. What's on the agenda now for you? You know, I don't know. I mean, right now, happy with what I'm doing. A lot of working Marines in our office, we've got a section leader from my first deployment, a squad leader from my first deployment, and a fire team leader from my first deployment, all are working in the office. And actually, I'm sorry, and then two other squad leaders as well. Like, I love working with Marines every day. I, I mean, I have the best job in the world because we, we, it's the Marine Corps without the bullshit. Bullshit is what I say. Because, you know, it's grown up rules. You either get the job done or you don't. And if you don't, there's consequences. Are There's consequences and usually it's financial. So, you know, I love that side of it. I'm happy with what I'm doing. You know, I've got a family now, a three-year-old boy. So I don't know that I'm willing to give all that up to make another run. But I'm not going to rule it out either. It just kind of it depends on what happens. When Shelby's up for re-election in two years, uh, I could make another run and, and challenge him and, and just be like, listen, are you better off now than you were six years ago? That's the question. You know, let's, let's go for round two. Not saying I will, you know, at that point, because I, I know his, his war chest is back up to near $20 million, and He could raise another $10 million overnight if he wanted to just because of his power as appropriations chair. You know, it, it really comes down to what's best for our country. And if I think that, if I think he's vulnerable enough to do it, if I feel called to do it, I'll do it. You know, for someone who, who is interested in running for a seat, what would be their, their first step? You know, what, what were the steps that you took to actually get that process started? Sure. There's such a long step, uh, such a long process. And I mean, what I would do first of all is try to get your name ID up there. Uh, so, you know, so when they recognize the name, you know, Jonathan McConnell, uh, it took, it probably took a million dollars worth of ads just to, so people actually knew that I was running. Uh, or people even knew that there was a race. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, a lot of times you have such an uneducated electric at the time. Uh, you know, that people that people didn't know that I was running or that there was even Shelby was up for the election. Uh, I mean, it's it's amusing if you even look on social media now, you'll have a congressman running in, in Mobile. The congressman running in Mobile, someone was like, but I'm voting for Tommy Tuberville. I'm like, Tommy Tuberville is running for Senate. Like, they, they, a lot of times people just don't even distinguish between the two because we just we have an extremely uneducated electorate most of the time. And, and so you've got to go through and develop that education. You've got to the electorate to realize this is a race that you're in it. You've got to develop the name ID as well. So if you don't, you know, someone wants to get involved, I, I would say establish yourself as a community leader, as, um, you know, as someone who's making a difference, establish a record, whether it's a record of success in the business, record of success in the military, record of success in the community, whether it's volunteering or you know, getting put on committees, getting put on boards, uh, you know, and where you're actually making a difference as someone who who's done good things. Um, you know, people, it amazes me when in Alabama we had Jeff Sessions versus Tommy Tuberville in a runoff. And people were like, we don't know much about Tommy Tuberville. We're going to vote for Jeff Sessions. I was like, well, Jeff Sessions has largely been an incredible failure as an attorney general. I mean, he's a, he's a personal friend of mine. I, I mean, I, he was there when I got back from Iraq the first time. I, I worked with him uh, in D.C. When I, was, when I just got out of college, I had an internship for him. 
I like him as a person. He's an incredibly nice guy. But that doesn't mean he's an effective U.S. senator. He'd been up there for 20 years as a U.S. senator. We never cut our spending underneath Jeff Sessions. We, you know, he had been griping about immigration for 20 years. In 2003, immigration was a huge issue for him. It's 2020, and it's still a huge issue. And the, you know, people who've been up there for 30 years don't know how to move the ball forward and solve the problems. You need the people who are fresh minds, who've got the energy, who are going to say, hey, guys, this is bullshit. We've been talking about this for 20 years. Let's solve the problem today. We, have, we, have, we may have to move to the middle and make some concessions, but let's do that to get the ball across the line, not sit there and say, well, I don't want anybody ever to come into this country without a you know, the proper visa. You know, hey, you know what? You're going to have to make a compromise somewhere. And, but let's, let's at least do it. Let's get those people who are here to start paying taxes now and retroactively for however long they've been here or whatever the it is to get the ball moving. Let's do that. Well, I think that's, I can speak to the government a little bit. I mean, having worked in the civilian side of government also, I can tell you that the solution to any problem in the government is just to spend more money. And I don't think yeah. a lot of people realize that. And it's, it's not about accountability. It's not about productivity. It's not about showing any kind of accomplishments. It's just how much money can I spend? And I can tell you the amount of inefficiency and waste in government is beyond most people's comprehension. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I think what you said is true. People don't really understand the reality of government and they don't understand how it actually functions and how much waste there is. And if they knew it, I think they'd vote everybody out because it's just, it's appalling. I mean, I think that you can literally take every department and say, hey, we're cutting your budget 20%, everything would be okay. I mean, there would be a lot of complaining and there would be a lot of crying and that, wailing and gnashing mm -hmm. of teeth. But at the end of the day, everybody would be fine. Look at the government shutdown we did, what, two years ago? And I was like, hey, everything, everything seemed to work out pretty fine. Like, I mean, it's okay. Let's shut the government down, you know, and, and let it shut down for three months. And I bet you that no one's really going to miss anything. We'll also continue to pay our military from a federal level. Why is the federal government involved in so much? At a federal level, to me, it should be there to provide the national defense and then a general direction on education. Like, so I think we should pull our resources on, on education on like, okay, I want the University of Maryland, Baltimore to be the, the school or the institution that is the premier heart surgeon, you know, heart surgeons. We'll, we'll provide some federal funding for them to study heart surgery or, you know, then I want UC Berkeley, for crying out loud, or just naming institutions here. You're going to be the brain people uh, that are they're studying brain disease, uh, Alzheimer's, and everything like that. University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, congratulations. You're going to study the liver. You know, obviously, you drink enough alcohol at, at football games. I'm sure that, that, that you need to. You know, but like, it, and so from a federal level, in setting the maybe education, I think a strong education is the best foundation for, you know, defense, really. Uh, you know, having a smart, a smart electorate. But other than that, the, government, the federal government should be out of everything else. It should be, I mean, to me, we should have a, such a small federal government that, like, let's have a bigger state, a state government, if that's what you want. Because then the state can focus on, you know, on a smaller level what's what's best for that state and what's best for its citizens. But there, there's no way the bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. should be able to make decisions on how to, how to make my life better in Mobile, Alabama. Absolutely not. Get out of my way. Let me forge my own path. Yeah, that, that's a that's a real interesting conversation, and that goes back to you know Tenth Amendment and states' rights and everything else. And I think that's that's a huge topic right now. And I, I think that the country we have today is a lot different than maybe what the founding fathers even envisioned, only because it's there's so much con federal control over a lot of things. And I mean, we can that we can go on for hours about that. that that's real interesting.
Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say the same thing, John. You're such an interesting guy. We could, we could go down rabbit holes all day, but I, we're running low on time. I'm cognizant of what you have going on in your life, but I do have one other question that I think is very relevant to the group because I, I actually tell people this, kind of reiterating a thing I learned from you. So there was a time we were speaking on the phone, and you told me not to be afraid to reach out to big mentors, like no, no matter who you are, reach out, and you'd be surprised some of them that reach back. And can you just talk about some of the mentors, the big names that you reached out to and some of the relationships that you developed? Yeah, I mean, so that was a New Year's resolution of mine uh, six or seven years ago was to just to go big and reach for the stars. Uh, and so one of mine was Jim Mattis, uh, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis. Uh, I prefer to call him General Mattis just because uh, to me, uh, him being uh, a general is what I always know him as, not necessarily the Secretary of Defense. Uh, it was such an honor to serve underneath him. Uh, but got in touch with him um, and basically just said, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm a Marine infantry officer who's served underneath you. I've got a company that defends ships, you know, commercial vessels off the coast of Somalia. Uh, I hired Marines. Uh, you know, I just love to just talk to you. I had tracked down his email uh, from, he, he's got an agent, essentially, and tracked down his email from his agent. And basically, the agent said, sure, send him an email. You know, here it is. And so I sent that email to him and said, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to do. Which would love to use you as a sounding board or whatever. Uh, and I was going to eventually invite him to be on our board of directors or board of advisors. And, uh, and so I sent him the email and he replied back within about four hours and said, Jonathan, uh, thanks so much for reaching out. Here's my cell phone. Call me anytime. Holy shit. Jim Mattis <laughs> just told me, here's my cell phone. Call me anytime. And, uh, and I was just like, wow. And so, that was on a Friday, and I remember I'd gone to Texas A&M that weekend uh, to spend the weekend with some buddies of mine, Marine Corps buddies of mine, and, and just were like, yo, we were going to go watch the Texas A&M's SMU game and, and have a great time. And then about like 4 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, he's like, hey, did you get my email? Did you want to give me a call? And I was like, holy crap, he's following up. He actually generally wants to hear. So I was in the airport, and, uh, first time I ever called him, I was in the airport in, in uh, Austin, Texas, flying back to Mobile. And he was just like, he's like, sir, it's, you know, Jonathan McConnell, thanks so much for taking my call. He's like, Jonathan, I owe you and all the other Marines uh, such a debt of gratitude. He's like, because every time that I got to bind, y'all, the Marines bailed me out, and you Marines bailed me out, and you paid for, for it for the price of blood. I mean, in every time I've ever spoken to Jim Mattis, he puts he puts chills up my back with just the stuff that he says. Most humble leader, uh, the most incredibly well-read man I've ever met. And just such incredibly sage, sound advice that I've always gotten. And, you know, there's people out there just like him that are willing to help. Uh, you know, they're, they're willing to, you know, to provide advice, um, you know, and, and seeing that uh, among leaders that are out there, you don't get to where you are. You don't get to become Jim Mattis or Tim Cook without having people like him that have mentored him you know, like in, in, in to give back as well. And so they're, they're absolutely well, you know, more than well willing to give back. Uh, Tim Cook is the other person who's on my list. I have not gotten in touch with him yet. I've tried. He may have read my emails, but he's never responded. But Tim Cook is actually from, he grew up 40 miles away from here, from where our office is. So I do have a smaller connection with him. But, you know, like there are people out there who are just like that. I mean, I, I spent, uh, when I landed back into the country yesterday, had set up a phone call with a Marine who just got out of the Marine Corps and who was just looking for advice on the career and spent 45 minutes talking to him. You don't have success without giving back. And that's, uh, you know, like, so you can't just sit there and take, 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 you've got to give. And so I would, I would advise on that. John, I can't believe we've been talking for more than an hour. 
I mean, we could do four episodes with you easily between multiple combat deployments, going to law school, creating your own shipping company, making a run for the Senate, political views. I mean, just awesome, awesome content here. Uh, but I'm cognizant of your time. I appreciate you giving back to us by taking the time to talk to us. I know you were out of the country last night, taking phone calls to India this morning, but we really appreciate it. I think there's a lot we can learn. For the listeners, the company, we've been saying it, I'll show Meridian, but it's M-E-R-I-D-I-A-N. If you want to give it a quick Google, John McConnell, CEO, hope to see him in the political arena someday. John, we really appreciate you being with us. All right, everybody, this is Stu Scheller and Brian Hanna with the Nothing Owed podcast. Thanks again, John. All right, see you, brother.